WISIP is the first international project aimed at promoting Italian cinema, directed by women, which is also available in an accessible version. It was selected as a special project by the Italian Ministry of Culture. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Elena Davitti. I am Associate Professor in Translation Studies at the University of Surrey Centre for Translation Studies. For a few years now, I have been researching practices at the crossroads of translation and interpreting, such as speech-to-text interpreting, live subtitling via speech recognition or re-speaking, to make different types of access of content, sorry, from information to culture to entertainment accessible in real time and across languages to the widest possible audience uh, beyond sensory, cultural, linguistic and cognitive boundaries. So it is a real honour for me to be here today and to uh, have been asked to moderate what promises to be a very interesting panel on accessible filmmaking, how to make films accessible to anyone. Now, this is a very important dimension, as you probably know already, of the Women in Cinema, in Italian Cinema, an inclusive project, which is a project co-funded by the Italian Ministry of Culture, with the goal to promote Italian cinema written, produced and directed by women filmmakers on an international scale, emphasizing also uh, the importance of making it accessible to the widest possible audience. So to this end, um, the the project uh, will travel across continents, will present such films in many locations uh, all around the world, and uh, we will make such films uh, available in fully accessible versions with subtitles for the deaf and hard of hearing and audio description for the blind and visually impaired people. In the same spirit, our panel today is made accessible via live subtitling that should be appearing on the screen as we as we speak. So I would like to take this opportunity to uh, thank Evan Dorenstein for making this possible by providing uh, live subtitles right now via re-speaking. So uh, today's panel is the first uh, on accessibility organized by the WeChip project. And it is part of a broader event taking place in London today at the Garden Cinema in Covent Garden in collaboration with Cinema Italia UK that we would also like to thank for their support in making this possible. So due to the train and tube strikes that I'm sure you're all aware of in the UK this week, we decided to move this specific panel online and we will make its recording available on the mymovies.it platform, which is also a partner in the project. So as we're running late, without further ado, I would like to briefly introduce our panelists today. So to set the background... um, We will actually start with um, a recorded contribution made by one of the main experts uh, in this field, Pablo Romero Fresco, who is currently based at the University of Vigo in Spain and is Honorary Professor of Translation and Filmmaking at the University of Roehampton uh, in London, UK. We will then discuss uh, current uh, accessible filmmaking practices, needs, challenges, implications and future steps with our three guest speakers that are that have joined this virtual roundtable today. So we have Kate Dangerfield, who is PhD researcher in accessible filmmaking at the University of Roehampton. Elena Di Giovanni, who is professor of translation and accessibility at the University of Macerata in Italy. And Louise Fryer, who is an expert in audio description and how to make performances, films and exhibition accessible to people with sensory impairments. So to start with, what I'm going to do, I'm going to play the video that was prepared by Pablo Romero Fresco, 
who will explain what accessible filmmaking is, some benefits, implications, challenges of this approach, and we'll bring some practical examples. I apologize in advance as I will need to cut it before it's end. I'm sure Pablo won't mind, but I'm confident that he will give us already a pretty good overview of what we are talking about. Hello, my name is Pablo Romero Fresco. I work at the University of Vigo. Elena might have introduced my, uh, me already. Um, I'd just like to thank you um, for having me in the panel, and I'm sorry that I've not been able to take part in person, only through this recorded video. Hopefully, um, it will help uh, kick off the discussion. So I'd like to share a little presentation so that you can see a few of things that I'd like to talk about. Um, I'm going to try and have my image on screen. There we go. Hopefully, then that should be okay now. Okay, so I'd like to talk about accessible filmmaking um, and, uh, well, perhaps starting with the idea of what is um, accessibility, what is accessibility in film. And um, here I'd say that, to be honest, at the very beginning, um, accessibility was considered as a part of audiovisual translation almost. You could translate films by dubbing them or subtitling them or providing voiceover. And media access was perhaps a little corner within that building, a little room within that building. So if you have to uh, make your films accessible for people with hearing loss, then it's subtitles that you provide. If you want to provide access for people who are blind or partially blind, then audio description or an audio track with descriptions of images, amongst other things. That's a traditional conception of, of accessibility. But things seem to be changing these days. And Tia um, Maria Greco talks about these, these three shifts where accessibility um, is now something that concerns everyone, not only people with disabilities. Uh, it's now, in some cases, being considered from the beginning, not at the very end of a process. And users are beginning to um, take center stage, if you like. So I'd like to talk about um, that. First about the for all, about the idea that accessibility concerns everyone. We know that 80% of people who use subtitles for the deaf are actually not deaf or hard of hearing, and that 85% uh, of video content in Facebook, for example, is shown without sound and therefore with subtitles. So subtitles concern everyone. Um, then from the beginning, well, what we're saying here is that media access is traditionally being considered as something of a, an afterthought. You have the pre-production, production, and post-production of a film, and then uh, at the distribution level, let's see if you can show this, yeah. Um, then that's when media accessibility happens with a, with a media access expert who works in isolation, no contact with the filmmakers or anything. Um, so this is not something that helps a lot, really. Um, and we know that it's not really, I don't know how to put it, very fair, because if we take the Top Crossing or Best Picture Oscar winners of the um, first of the 21st century, uh, we know that the average um, kind of amount of revenue provided by uh, translated or accessible versions is 50%. So 50%, let's just put it this way, 50% of the revenue of these films comes from translated or accessible versions, but only 0.01 or 0.1% of the budget is normally spent on translation and access. So there's a great deal of leeway there for uh, producers to invest a little bit more on translation and access. 
bearing in mind how important it is that that these things are taken into account um, and how important it is to actually look after those versions because of the impact that they have. So what we're trying to do is trying to kind of close this triangle um, and bring the filmmakers closer to the media access experts, experts and translators, but also to the viewers, to different types of viewers. And we do that by promoting this model, um, which had already been um, announced before, is the consideration of translation and accessibility during the production of audiovisual media um, through the collaboration between the creative team and the translators um, and in order to provide access for all or for as many people as possible. Now, what does that mean or what does it change? What does it imply? I'd like to give you just a little example. Maybe I can show you. I can show you this. So uh, imagine we take this film uh, that I made a few years ago. The stroke behind the optic nerve and went to bed one night with a massive headache. It's a short film about and with Trevor, a colleague, a friend of mine who was uh, who turned blind when he was 60. Um, and we have the same, the following shots. Woke up the next morning, terrible pain. So I was taken to Charing Cross. Now the dots you see on the screen, the yellow or orange dot is people who are watching the film without subtitles. The blue dot is people who are watching the same film with subtitles. I'd like to see, I'd like you to focus on what happens with when there's a close-up now of the cane of the cane that Trevor has, and what happens with the blue dot. Um, from there I was taken across to St George's and the guy said, look, ever so sorry, he said, but um, you've gone blind in your right eye. If you noticed, the blue dot, the people who were watching the film with subtitles, could only see the subtitle, um, but they couldn't go up and see the image. These, these are um, fixations from an eye tracking machine that we use for research. And what it shows is that in this particular shot, which I made because this is the film I made, when I had that close-up, I was thinking mostly of my original viewers, the orange dot. And the original viewers have no problem with listening to Trevor's voice and looking at the images. But because that short shot was subtitled, for those people who were watching the subtitled version, they just didn't have time to look at the subtitle and look at the image. I didn't allow them enough time um, so a short shot was okay, but as soon as there is audio, and it needs to be subtitled for a lot of people, those people are missing the images. When I rewatched my film, I realized that, and I, I tracked it with, with this machine, I realized that so many people who were watching the film with subtitles were missing a lot of images. So they were watching the same film as the original viewers, but they were watching it so differently that it almost became a different film. Now, when you think of um, accessible filmmaking, you start thinking of not just the original viewers, but all the others, the other viewers, those who are blind or those who are deaf, those who need subtitles because they they don't have English as a first language, and and these things start now um, making you consider film in a different way. Yeah. So, for example, if I am preparing this interview for a documentary. I may be thinking, okay, this is a good space for a caption where I identify this interviewee. But hang on, my subtitles are going to be here as well. So what subtitle do I want with regard to, you know, what kind of text do I want? What kind of font 
do I want and, and, and the format and style do I want, knowing that I'm going to have more text on screen as well. So you start considering other aspects because access and translation, and in this case, captions or subtitles, become part of my the tools that I'm using as I'm making the film. I don't forget about it and outsource it as it's normally done, but with an accessible filmmaking, you start integrating it in the process of making the film, or in this case, post-producing it. And then you start, you know, everything start makes it, for me, making a little bit more sense. So uh, when captions are supposed to describe sound, for example, unwished music subsides, is it unwished music or not? Who decides the description of that sound for the deaf viewers? Normally, it's a subtitler at home who describes this, making up uh, an adjective. But as a filmmaker, um, I once described that music to uh, a musician who then made music, right? So that music was coming from an adjective that I probably thought of as a filmmaker. Can we not have a discussion with the subtitler and decide on what adjective is better as opposed to leaving the subtitler to their own devices and deciding? So by integrating access, then um, everything becomes a little bit more collaborative as well. Okay. I'm afraid we have to stop the video here. There will, uh, there are some resources that Pablo mentioned at the end of this video that we will be very happy to share with uh, those of you who are interested in this practice. But of course, uh, I mean, we hope that this has been a fairly clear and, you know, informative overview of the field. So I'd like to kick off our panel discussion now. And I'd like to begin with you, Luis, perhaps. Uh, asking you uh, more about some concrete examples of application of accessible filmmaking. Can you perhaps tell us a little bit about your experience in Notes on Blindness as one of the first films to apply the accessible filmmaking model? Yes, Notes on Blindness was a film about a man, a theologian called John Hull, who was losing his sight. And the filmmakers got hold of his original audio tapes in which he recorded his experiences and impressions. And they created their film from that. And Pete Middleton, who was one of the directors, knew that I'd been working on research around including visual information about the camera shots in the audio description. I've been a describer for a very long time. And so he got in touch with me and said, did I want to do the description for the film? And it was just as Pablo was talking about, we were able in the pre-production stage to talk through how it would work, what innovations they could create to make it what they wanted it to be, the most accessible film for blind and partially sighted people. So we did things like I could write my script and if I didn't know how old a character was, I could email Pete and he would contact me back and say, oh no, they're not four, they're only three. I mean, it's minor, minor things, but it means that you feel much more confidence as a describer, knowing that you're accurate and you're getting it right. And we also had the opportunity to record it together. So normally... In the UK, the describer who writes the script will also record the script. And to be able to do that with the sound designer before they fix the final sound design was really fascinating. And then I've been working with them on their most recent documentary, which is about Charlie Chaplin. And so they didn't make their final sound, their finished sound, until the description had been written. And then we were able to highlight certain sound effects in the script that made it much more self-evident for blind people as to what was happening. So it didn't need description because we could use the existing sound effects and make them more audible so people would know when someone had walked in or 
if someone was, was on a ship, for example, when Charlie Chaplin sailed for America, I didn't have to describe the ship. We just heard a ship's funnel more loudly in the sound effects, in the soundtrack. So it was that kind of innovation, which just made it much more fun to work on. And it meant it was more creatively satisfying, I think, for them. Absolutely. And an example of very good collaboration uh, among different stakeholders being very fruitful and productive. Um, Kate, I'd like perhaps to move on to you now. Um, So as part of your PhD thesis, you started off wanting to make a film about dual and single sensory impairments and other complex needs. And you ended up making a film with them, effectively. So uh, what does that tell us about accessible filmmaking? And what is the idea about the content, the concept, sorry, of access to creation that you often refer to in your work? Um, yes. So so my PhD was, um, it was practice as research. Um, the whole research process centred around filmmaking workshops um, with people with sensory impairments and complex needs. Um, And this part of the research developed in collaboration with the National Disability Charity Sense, um, the people involved in the workshops, um, and also my supervisors, and that's Pablo Romero Fresco um, and William Brown. Um, And it was funded by the British Film Institute. Um, But we had research questions for the workshops, um, and that was um, which equipment was accessible, um, how do people use film as a means of communication and expression, Um, And then how do they access that content that they create? Um, The workshops were really fun um, and experimental um, and people could choose what they wanted to film and how they wanted to do it. Um, And although I was really open to what might happen, I think looking back, I had a really different idea um, for the project in general. And I think that was because of the preconceived ideas that I had about film. Um, And the workshops, they developed in such different ways due to people's needs and interests and people were using the equipment in really different ways as well. Um, So it was just really clear that um, that they told their stories in their own way um, from their own perspective. Um, And this really changed my perspective about what film is and and what it can be. Um, And yeah, and just that it was really important to learn differently together rather than me making a film about them it was very much um, what we what we learned together. Um, and I think what that tells us about accessible filmmaking, in my opinion, is just, um, it's just really the importance of access to creation. Um, and I think I started, when I started my research, it was really from a perspective of access to content. So thinking about the subtitles and thinking about the audio description and how the filmmaking process could accommodate those. Um, and I think actually, but when you delve into it and, and with an accessible filmmaking approach, and then when you put these ideas into practice, um, and especially if you're working with people with disabled people, um, then the focus just becomes wider and it's really necessary to think about access in a wider context. And so that's this idea of sort of access to creation and access to equipment and space and funding um, and just a, a really holistic approach, I think, to access. And then these all would work in, con- like in conjunction, in conjunction, conjunction with each Yes, uh, holistic yes, is exactly the adjective that sprang to mind, I think, as you, as you were talking about this approach, indeed. 
So uh, continuing to talk about um, current practices in accessible filmmaking, I, I have a question for Elena. Um, and as we've heard, accessible filmmaking refers to films and uh, more specifically, it is about integrating access from the very inception of the um, filmmaking uh, process. Now, you have extensive experience in film accessibility and particularly audio description and um because the WeChip project is about Italian uh, cinema and films, can you perhaps uh, shed some light on the current state of affairs in Italy in relation to this field and to this practice? Yes. Um, well, I have to say that um, audio description and uh, not only accessibility in general has been on the rise in Italy in the past few years. And uh, this is especially due to streaming service providers that have brought um, media accessibility as a regular service in Italy and elsewhere. So beginning with Netflix and then following on, um, you know, service providers like uh, Prime, for example, offer accessibility more and more. This has been very helpful in stimulating other you know, service providers and also the, um, our national broadcaster, Rai, who, uh, which has been offering audio description, for example, for many years, but just on a very few, uh, very limited products. Um, whereas nowadays they have, they have been doing more and more also in terms of live accessibility. So providing, for example, live audio description for some live events, important events. And I think that's a good occasion, although it's not exactly cinema, to integrate access services from the very conception of, of a show in that case. And, uh, and the good side of all of this is that um, there is increasing attention and awareness. So this is very positive. In terms of accessible filmmaking as a practice, I'm not sure that um, a lot has been done so far in Italy, just because what Pablo was saying in the video is very true. The move from post-production to pre-production and production within a, within a movie production is not always easy. So there have been a few experiments, I have to say very often uh, originating, for example, out of film festivals, uh, where it's easier to be in touch with producers and also filmmakers um, and make, make plans for further experiments. Um, I was thinking as I was, you know, um, preparing uh, for, uh, for this uh, roundtable that I think this project uh, is going to be very important in terms of spreading awareness and, uh, and stimulating a change in, towards accessible filmmaking. So good luck on the project. Surely so. And this is one of the main reasons for holding this roundtable today, exactly raising awareness and knowledge about this practice and their importance and implications. Absolutely so. But thanks for shedding light on the Italian situation, which is particularly relevant to the project indeed. Uh, now, as we were, you know, watching the video and listening to the contributions, uh, we clearly understood that uh, as well as introducing access from the very beginning, uh, we are or we seem to be moving closer and closer to perhaps a more thorough notion of inclusion and participation. So involving collaborations and uh, users, sorry, as collaborations, um, creators of content, uh, directly involved in the process. 
So, Louise, uh, you mentioned a very nice example earlier, and it'd be nice to also hear more about your current work with um, blind people for theatre audio description. Uh, in your view, is this leading to traditional or perhaps more alternative or creative forms of access as compared to audio description made only by sighted describers? I think that traditionally, descri- description has been received by blind people sitting in a theatre or in a cinema, wearing headphones. So only they hear the description. It means it's closed. Other people are unaware that it's even happening. Whereas in the theatre more recently, theatre companies have wanted to embrace access. So they make it open so that a character might describe another character when they walk on stage. Or I've been working with a theatre company with disabilities, learning disabilities, and they speak what they do as a way of remembering They move towards the television or they sit on the bed and pick up a cup of tea. And it's called an Italian rehearsal, in fact. But it becomes a way of describing so that for for a blind person listening, they know what's going, going on on stage. And there are lots of different ways you can make your production more accessible. Maybe costumes can be designed in materials or fabrics that have some degree of noise. A dancer might be wearing bracelets on her ankles that jingle or flamenco style shoes that make a noise when you walk across the stage. So there are lots and lots of different ways in which it can become more accessible and more exciting. I think lots of directors feel that it's just another tool they can work with. So they're used to working with lighting designers and with choreographers and maybe with set designers and having an ability to work with access consultants is just another tool. Absolutely fascinating. So many options also that are opened up by by all these different practices. Very interesting your comment on this also, uh, different types of costumes and all the options to be borne in mind when uh, when, when thinking and producing something. Um, Actually, that kind of made me think of another important link that we can only touch upon, unfortunately, due to time constraints that uh, you, Elena, have explored. And it's the link between integrated access, which um, is how the notion of accessible filmmaking is actually applied to theatre and opera uh, and well-being. So can you tell us perhaps in a nutshell about it? And uh, if you can also maybe what lessons can be learned and fed into accessible filmmaking? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I have to say that I um, tend to prefer to talk about uh, inclusive practices, inclusive theatre, rather than talking about integrated access. And there has uh, recently been a move away from the traditional notion of accessibility towards the notion of inclusion, which is also connected to integrated access, obviously. Uh, inclusion, to me, means much more than just accessibility. For example, moving from accessibility to inclusion implies moving from a barrier-centered Um, notion to a user-centered notion. So it means that we don't focus on the barriers so much. We focus on the people and their different skills. Mm -hmm. And also this implies moving from a reactive approach, which means we have a film, we have to make it accessible, but the film exists already. 
uh, to a proactive approach. So let's make a film that is accessible from the very beginning. I think this is what accessible filmmaking has brought into the picture. And this is how it's developing, not just uh, in terms of cinema, but also in relation to theatre, for example. And I've been involved in uh, inclusive theatre projects for um, about 15 years now. As for well-being, um, I came to... Um, use the notion of well-being uh, a couple of years ago, because I think it's what we need in media accessibility research, but also in practice, because it's one step forward in uh, understanding how um, access or inclusion functions and what the impact is on people. We've been uh, doing reception studies a lot on media accessibility, also theater accessibility, but normally those studies focus on immediate reactions. So comprehension, appreciation, and so on. The idea of applying the notion of well-being is the idea of looking at the medium to long-term effects of exposure to access services, to inclusive theater and to inclusive cinema. Um, so well-being has been studied in psychology and sociology, for example, for many years. I think that bringing this notion into media accessibility research and practice will help us uh, enhance mm, the services, enhance inclusion. Absolutely. That's very clear. Thank you so much for shedding light on this concept. And there's another concept also that um, perhaps is worth um, elaborating upon a little bit, which is that of access as conversation. And Kate, you and Pablo have recently co-authored uh, a paper, which is coming out soon, by the way, in the Journal of Audiovisual Translation. So congratulations on, on that. And you've discussed this notion of uh, access as conversation as a two-way process as opposed to access as a monologue or a one-way process. Um, can you expand perhaps on, on this idea of access as conversation? Um, yes, yeah. so really I think um, linking to what I was talking about before as well, about a holistic approach to access um, and about thinking um, yeah, about funding, about equipment and content and space um, if you start thinking about it in those terms, it really highlights the imbalance of power, I think, that exists between uh, many disabled and non-disabled people. Um, and I think for the most part, non-disabled people provide access to work that's produced by non-disabled people. Um, and even if there is input from disabled people, it's often in the realms of a non-disabled world. Um, so very simply put, it's sort of access is a one way process um, or yeah, or could be considered as a monologue, as you mentioned. Um, so John Lee Clark, um, he's a deafblind poet, a writer and an activist. Um, and he writes um, that the way access services are lobbied for, funded, designed, implemented and used revolves around the assumption that there's only one world um, and ignores the realms of possibility um, nestled within those same modes. Um, and he asked the question, why is it never about us and whether or not we include them rather than non-disabled people, including disabled people? So really just reversing the question. Um, and so then I think the question really is, is it possible to move away from access as a one way process? And, and can it be considered as a conversation? Um, and I think if you start thinking about access like that, then you really need to consider multiple perspectives um, and um, because if not, and if you remove the subjectivity, um, as um, there's a deaf poet called Raymond Antrobus, and he says that 
if you remove the subjectivity, then captions are presented as the voice of God. Um, and that also parallels with Georgina Cleage's view on audio description about um, how the illusion of objectivity is reinforced because the description is delivered without authorship, um, as if it is, present, it is represented as an unsaliable truth. Um, so there's also a really interesting artist um, called Christine Sum Kim, um, and she explores the subjective and poetic nature of captions. Um, and she's been profoundly deaf from birth. She's an ASL user. Um, and she proposes a deaf-centric approach to media accessibility. And this really turns captions into poetry. So she's asked, there's one piece that's called Close Readings, which she did in 2015, um, and she asked a group of deaf viewers to provide sound captions for clips of A Space Odyssey and for The Little Mermaid. Um, and these different versions then produced, um, yeah, really interesting descriptions that are really not, um, it's definitely not what I'm used to from what I've learned as, as subtitling. Um, and so descriptions such as regret swells or the sound of a problem that is not a problem, um, and then actually that's led her to make a short film, which is called Closer Captions. Um, and there's descriptions such as um, feet slapping on bathroom tiles or images are described as the sweetness of orange sunlight. Um, and she really questions like, whether sound can be a feeling. So there's descriptions such as the sound of hurt feelings scabbing over. So her work's super interesting because it really reveals that how professionals who do usually produce captions have such a different relationship to sound. Um, and it also reveals an ableist assumption that many of us, um, and it's definitely something that I've thought in the past, that um, sound um, equates to silence um, in terms of deafness. Um, and so captioners, um, they're usually advised against using words like the sound of um, because it might be offensive, where actually this could be like a really interesting route to explore. Um, and as sound is a vibration and it resonates and it's generally thought of and felt and embodied by, ven by very many viewers with hearing loss. Um, and, you know, they, they have a profound and imaginative way to explore this. Um, and most guidelines don't don't cover that. Um, and I think there are also other examples, not just in subtitling, but in audio description. Um, Simon Hayhoe has introduced the notion of flipping descriptions. So he refers to a new approach of audio description that consists of taking the description out of the hands of the sighted person and hands it to the audiences that it's designed to support. Um, or making descriptions part of the artwork, and that's really similar to integrated access and, and things that other people have spoken about already. So, yeah, I think these examples just really show this idea of access of a, as a conversation and, you know, the importance of recognising multiple perspectives and people from different worlds, whether they're disabled or non-disabled. Absolutely. And this actually um, is a very nice link to what is perhaps, due to reasons of time, going to be my last question to, uh, that I will open to the whole panel, if that's OK. So, um Perhaps in a little bit of a provocative way, I'd like to ask you, uh, in your view, uh, whether you think it is possible to make films and art more in general uh, accessible for all or uni truly universal. That is to say, not just for people with disabilities and at the same time, ensure that people with disabilities are catered for. So. In other words, do you think that it's possible to make access both universal and personalised, which is also something that is being discussed in the field 
I'm happy to open the floor to any of our panelists for this final question. Kate, uh, who would like to start? Uh, Elena, perhaps. Elena, perhaps, absolutely. Uh, with, Go um, ahead. With a very universalistic uh, approach. Um, I, I may sound provocative myself, but I think that inclusive media have to be seen as universal. So we have to do it. It has to become normal to consider them as universal. I think this has been shown um, by research, but also by practice um, in, in the past years, quite a few years. And it's more and more evident. Louise was actually referring to theater performances, for example, where uh, audio description is op- open, mm-hmm. audible for, uh, for all. The same has been happening more and more, for example, with sign language but also with captions, different types of captions in creative ways. Um, I think the potential and the actual benefits of access services for everyone or for many people, if not all, are evident and they should be made more and more visible. And I think all of this, and I'll finish here, is important not just because it means more awareness and increased visibility for accessible media, for example, but also because it closes, somehow closes the cycle of accessibility. Uh, we started thinking and also working in accessibility um, with the idea that we were doing, providing a service for a person with a disability, whereas we're sort of reversing the cycle here. And I think uh, this will lead to having effective, truly effective and inclusive media, hopefully in the future. Brilliant. I'm going to pick up from that. Um, I think that the problem with access, if, you, if there is a problem, is that it started out trying to be as undisruptive as possible. So it's kind of hidden, tucked away, didn't want to interfere. And it means it's become very low down in the agenda. And other people, do, people who don't need the service don't know it, it exists. Whereas by making it part of the actual creative process, it becomes visible to everybody and everybody can benefit. Um, I say, I mean, there is obviously some disabilities that don't match very well. So if you're subtitling something for deaf people, blind people can't, I mean, blind people can't read the subtitles, but they can hear the original. So maybe that's not so much of an issue. But in certain situations, some types of access practices, such as surtitling in opera, was designed for people who don't speak the language of the libretto. And it's um, it's used by deaf and hard of hearing people, as well as sighted people who who need the translation. And it's become necessary. People really like it. Originally, people were going, ah, these horrible screens all over my lovely stage. I don't want that. But in fact, now it's more expensive if you sit in a seat that has access to the surtitles. And I think that can become true for other access practices. Some of the ones that Kate was talking about, where subtitles become poetic, it gives you a different view on the art form. And I think that description can do that too. And touch tours whereby people go on stage before a production starts and can feel the costumes, walk around the set, talk to the actors. It's fantastic for kids, fantastic for people who don't necessarily speak the language, but they get a much clearer idea of what's happening. So all of those provide more context and we can all benefit from that. Kate, one final word, perhaps, from you as well. There's um, there's a really interesting quote from the um, disabled artist, Carolyn Lazard, 
um, and she's written some guidelines um, for accessibility in the arts. Um, and she writes, um, conversations about disability often rely on the idea of accessibility as a set of particular preset interventions. Um, but accessibility requires great flexibility. It demands a malleable infrastructure that shifts in real time with the needs of the community. And we cannot account for every need that every person will ever have. And to this end, this guide is no way meant to be comprehensive, but will hopefully change the institutional landscape of the arts. And in in her eyes, accessibility is a promise, but not a guarantee. Um, So it's a speculative practice. And I think I really agree with her in the terms that universal universal access can be an aspiration and it's important as an aspiration, um, but it can't be a guarantee. Thank you so much. And I think that on this quote, we can actually bring our panel to to a close. Um, I understand that this is a very broad topic and there would be so much more uh, to say, but it's been, I, I hope, very you know interesting and informative for our audience in London. And uh, clearly there will be other events uh, and panels on accessibility in future events of the WeChip project. So I'd like for now to thank all our panelists for keeping to time and at the same time providing us uh, sharing their expertise and experience in this film. We hope that this discussion has triggered some uh, interest and sparked attention and curiosity on uh, this very important aspect of filmmaking. So thank you very much, everybody, for your attention. And I hope you can enjoy the rest of your evening. WISIP is the first international project aimed at promoting Italian cinema written, produced, and directed by women, which is also available in an accessible version. It was selected as a special project by the Italian Ministry of Culture. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on fred.fm and smartphone apps.